all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 15th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And for this episode, we're going big. We're taking a broad look at a special group of fishes, the largest fishes that inhabit Earth's lakes and rivers and are found right here in North America and on all continents but Antarctica, the megafishes. And we've got a perfect guest for this topic. And you know, when I get to introduce the guest that we got something special, today we got Zeb Hogan, who normally I don't get very nervous for these episodes, but I grew up watching Zeb on TV. He was the host of Nat Geo's Monster Fish. He's a fisheries research biologist at the University of Nevada, Reno, and he's an author now. He was the director and the founder of the Mega Fishes Project. Now he's directing the Wonders of the Macon Project. It's just an honor to have you here, Zeb. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so what gets a fish in the mega fish category? Good question. For my work, I have kind of arbitrary definition, which is any fish that lives in freshwater that can grow over six feet long or weigh more than 200 pounds. And that's not a classic scientific definition. For example, freshwater megafauna, I think typically are defined as any fish over 30 kilos or around 66 pounds. But for my work, because I wanted to work with a smaller number of fish, I limited my research and my search and the shows to fish that can grow over six feet long or weigh more than 200 pounds. Worldwide, how many of those are there? And then how many can be found in North American waters? I started this work in 2005 actually started it when a 646-pound Mekong giant catfish was caught in northern Thailand with some fishermen that I'd been working with up there. And when that fish was caught, I just asked what I thought was a simple question, which is, is this the world's largest freshwater fish? Hmm. The fishermen there had been keeping records since the 1980s. I went back and looked through their records. There was nothing larger. News about the 646-pound catfish went around the world, and I was expecting to hear from people in other parts of the world, you know, stories of bigger fish, but that didn't happen. And so, as it turned out, that 646-pound catfish became the Guinness record holder for world's largest freshwater fish. And that's sort of what launched my interest, my curiosity, and ultimately the television shows and my research for the last 15 years was the capture of that big fish. So Guy, to to answer your question, when I first started, I thought there were about 20 species of freshwater fishes that could grow over six feet long or 200 pounds. But that list has expanded. And now I think maybe includes 35 or 40 species. And it's a diverse assemblage of fish from catfish and carp, freshwater stingrays, air-breathing arapaima, And then in North America, there's the Colorado pike minnow, alligator gar, lake sturgeon are the main fish that get to that size. I was really surprised to learn that they can grow that big, the pike minnow. And we're hoping to cover them on this show as well. I think American paddlefish, do they get, they're right around the six feet, right, Mark? Yeah, they get longer than six feet. They grow over 200 pounds. And so, yeah, that's definitely included as well. And with paddlefish, when you say six feet, are you counting the rostrum or not? <laughs> yeah. Total length, total length. Yeah, we count everything. Not going to shortchange the paddlefish. No, no, not at all. So yeah, the freshwater wh- whip right, 
can get up to five meters long, but that's a three meter long tail. So yeah. oh, dang. we count everything. And like many of these large fish, 70 or 80% of them are at risk of extinction. They're suffering from population declines. They're suffering from range contraction. And Colorado pike minnow, and to a certain extent, Mississippi paddlefish or American paddlefish certainly fit in that category as well. So the Colorado pike minnow now is mainly found in the upper Colorado River Basin, for example, in Utah, and we hardly see it at all anymore where I'm from in Arizona or down into the lower Colorado, Arizona, and California. Now, we've talked on this show a lot about habitat degradation and dams and things that impound fish passage. One thing that we've never had a chance to talk about, really, because it is fish of the week and we're usually focusing only on one species, is trophic level. I mean, we'll talk about what fish eat, but we don't talk about, you know, where they are in the food system. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the size of these fishes and how that's related to their trophic position and why that might be related to why we're seeing declines with them? In terms of trophic level, you might think that all of these big fish are top predators. And that's certainly the case for many of them, but not all of them. Uh, The American paddlefish it looks like a basking shark when it feeds. It opens its mouth um, incredibly wide and is a filter feeder. So it has long gill rakers and it filters small food out of the water column. You have fish like the Mekong giant catfish that we think is an omnivore, but primarily an algae eater. So these big fish are not universally top predators. When they are top predators, I think the giant trout in Asia is a good example that does put them at a disadvantage because they are top predators. They're relying on food and fish, other prey being abundant, you know, in the trophic levels below them. And they also are, for the most part, naturally rare in the system. In Mongolia, we were studying the giant trout. And even in a relatively pristine system, you only have about 20 fish per river kilometer. And so the density of these large fish, especially the ones that are top predators, is naturally low. And then when you add in overfishing, dams, pollution, all the threats that these fish face, populations can really drop. Many of them now are at risk of extinction. We know in northern latitudes, places like Alaska, northeast U.S., Pacific Northwest, you know, fish will go to the ocean for part of their life cycle because freshwater doesn't have the food sources that can get them so big, like a salmon wouldn't get so big if it was in freshwater. Is there any particular geography that's like a hotspot for the megafishes across the world or just kind of evenly distributed across the different continents except for Antarctica? Yeah, no, they're not evenly distributed. And the way that I got involved in this work, I was doing my PhD dissertation at UC Davis and I was focusing on migratory catfish of the Mekong called pangacids. And at the time, there were thought to be 12 species. They ranged in size from a foot to 10 feet. And I was focusing more on the smaller, more abundant, and very commercially important and nutritionally important smaller catfish. And so the work in the Mekong, I started hearing about these incredibly large fish. And so even though I wasn't focused on large-bodied fish at the time, It turns out that the Mekong is home to more of these big fish than anywhere in the world. And so in some ways, it was natural for me to sort of fall into that. I was interested in conservation biology, interested in fish, interested in endangered species issues. And these big fish in the Mekong River, no one was doing any work on them. 
they're threatened. You know, a lot of them are critically endangered or endangered. And so it seemed like there was a gap. And so I stepped in with the help of the university and National Geographic to start doing more work on these big fish. So we have large fish spread throughout North America and then down into South America. Amazon's the biggest river in the world. It has the most fish species, Mm -hmm. but not the most large fish. Although Arapaima can get up to four or 500 pounds. There's a really cool fish down in the Paraná River in Argentina that is called the short-tailed river ray, a freshwater ray that can get up to about 500 pounds, almost nothing known about it. And then the large catfish of the Amazon, which are famous for making these 10,000-kilometer, 8,000-kilometer migrations from the foothills of the Andes all the way out to the estuary. Do all these fish migrate? Is that something they have in common or need to move a lot in the rivers that they're found? We don't know. You know, a lot of these fish, even though they're megafauna, we tend to think of big animals getting the most attention. And But a lot of these fish, we don't know much about their life history. We don't understand their migratory behavior. I would say as a general rule, big fish need more space. And some of them, I mean, are among the most highly migratory freshwater fish in the world. Yes, they can be migratory. Yes, they need a lot of space, but that's not universally true. We just are finishing a study on giant freshwater stingray in Thailand, and Thai collaborators found that most of those big stingray, and these are three or 400 pound stingray, are only moving 10 or 20 kilometers in the river. So they're fairly restricted in their home range, (laughs) whereas, you know, big catfish in the Amazon will move 8,000 kilometers in a year. So we've mentioned that a lot of these big fishes are not doing great. And I'm curious now, Katrina's question was about just distribution, but the condition of these populations, is that evenly distributed around the world or are there some parts of the world doing better in terms of conserving these fishes compared to others? That's another good question. So I worked with a group of scientists looking at population trends of freshwater megafauna all around the world. And freshwater megafishes in Asia are not doing well at all. I think population decline in Asia was something like 95 to 97% over the last 30 to 40 years. Oh, wow. And you have fish like Chinese paddlefish, which was officially declared extinct a couple of years ago. Large fish in North America are doing better. And that's partially because the populations of our large-bodied freshwater fish really declined about 100 years ago. So our trajectory of decline happened earlier. And now, for the most part, populations have stabilized or are even recovering a little bit, but at much lower levels than they once were. So, for example, it's my understanding that lake sturgeon populations overall have declined 95 to 99% if you compare it with historic numbers. But The good news is where they still occur now, they are doing well. Like Lake Winnebago in Wisconsin is a wonderful example of a fishery that's being managed with a long-term vision. And then you also have some populations that are coming back. So you hear a lot about reintroductions of lake sturgeon in places where they don't occur right now, reintroductions of alligator gar. So in North America, the picture is more hopeful, but it also is because, you know, we built dams a long time ago and in other places they're just building them now. 
We know that 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of both the Endangered Species Act as well as CITES, which stands for Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, and that both the ESA and CITES serve to kind of make sure that animals and plants don't go extinct. Have you noticed along your path, you know, how well these tools are working? I'm not an expert on CITES or on the Endangered Species Act. I hear some criticism, but from my perspective, they're extremely valuable tools. One of the results of, for example, the Endangered Species Act is that you have species conservation action plans. You have people who are responsible for safeguarding populations of endangered species. And in other countries, that doesn't occur. And the Mekong is a good example. Mekong has estimated a thousand species of fish, and there isn't a single species conservation action plan for any Mekong fish species. So that, you know, when I see the ESA, Endangered Species Act, you know, having that focus on species at the brink of extinction is extremely valuable. In a lot of other places, you can have species disappear and people don't even realize they're gone, which as a fish biologist and as a conservation biologist, I find very sad. Yeah. So yeah, I grew up telling stories to all my friends around the elementary school cafeteria table about your adventures. Could you share some of those with us? With all of these big fish, like the first time I'm in the water with a new species, there's a getting to know you period, you know, watching how they swim, watching how they react to me, getting a sense for how they move, how they, you know, might be dangerous or either injure me or injure themselves. Lake sturgeon, they swim slowly. They don't get agitated. They don't pay much attention to people in the water. You know, they're the biggest thing out there. And they, for whatever reason, don't seem too phased by having someone in the water with them. They know they're good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're 100 years old, you know, 10 feet long. They have, you know, those crazy scoots along their body. They've been on Earth for 100 million years. So they're the ultimate survivor in terms of fish. They don't pay much attention. Mm-hmm. Paddlefish are a relative of sturgeon. And they sort of behave the same way. They're mm-hmm. pa- Paddlefish are, I find them very cute. They have this long paddle-like snout or rostrum with electro-sensing pores covering the snout. And they use the snout to sense prey, I guess maybe to get a sense for the density of prey or where prey is located. They have very small eyes, a very large mouth, and then a sturgeon-like. In some parts of the U.S., they're called, I think, spoonbill catfish. So they don't have scales. They have, you know, skin like reminiscent of a catfish. And then a long tail that almost looks like a shark's tail. So the paddlefish is a very cool fish. There's actually an old rock quarry in the Midwest where people go to learn how to scuba dive. Mm. And someone has stalked paddlefish into this flooded quarry. You can go down there and every once in a while, out of the depths or out of the murk, a paddlefish swims cool. by. That's super cool. And so with the Mekong giant catfish, I was in the first couple of years of my PhD program, got this crazy idea to work with fishermen in Cambodia, and they were catching Mekong giant catfish, critically endangered, and selling them for like 50 cents a pound. They weren't even a prize fish. So they were selling them for 
small amounts of money like it was any other fish. And so I got some uh, money from National Geographic and just arranged with the fishermen. I said, hey, when you catch a Bangkok giant catfish, I'll give you 50 cents a pound. And this was not a targeted fishery. They were had a big net, so they were just catching everything. So there was no way to target the endangered fish. So whenever they, by chance, caught one, I would compensate them at the market rate and then get a DNA sample tag, measure, and release the fish back into the wild. That's cool. You know, we were learning as we went. I think the first fish we just released off the side of the net and then the next net downstream caught it. So we learned our lesson. But <laughs> when we started taking them out to the middle of the river, the easiest way to hold them that I found is by the mouth. They don't have mm. teeth. And I would swim down with them until the water got dark, which Ooh. in a turbid river like the Mekong, <laughs> it doesn't take very long. It gets darker a lot faster than you think it would. And so I would take the fish down, you know, maybe 10 feet or whatever until it got dark and try to give them a push back down to the bottom of the river. And that mm. feeling of going down into their world, into the dark and kind of releasing them and trying to send them back to their world. That was one of the best feelings. That's cool. I'd be a little freaked out, I think. Ooh. We've been kind of taken for granted in this conversation that we know where the Mekong is and what it looks like. But I imagine there's people at home who don't know where this is, what this river looks like, how deep it is. Lots of the rivers I fish aren't nearly near that deep. So, so what is the river like and where is it? The Mekong flows through Southeast Asia. It starts in Tibet, you know, snow-capped mountains of the Himalayas, flows down through China, enters into Myanmar for a short time, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. It's, I think, 2,700 miles long. It's the 10th largest river in the world. So it's a big river. It gets bigger as you go downstream. As you, When you hit Vietnam, it branches out into nine smaller rivers that form the Mekong Delta. So it's a river that has a lot of different habitat, has a different character. Depending on where you are, there's a one mainstream waterfall that is right on the border of Cambodia and Laos, where in the dry season, the river slows enough that the sediment drops out and the water actually flows clear over this waterfall. Oh, cool. And historically, fishermen would set up all types of bamboo traps and weirs and all kinds of ingenious nets that would hang to catch fish that would try to be jumping over the waterfall. So the communities there developed all kinds of ingenious ways of catching fish as well. So it's a river with a lot of fish where it's a place where fish are very important. Cambodians eat over 50 kilograms of fish per year. So some of the highest per capita rates of fish. It's the most productive river in the world, producing over 2 million tons of fish every year. Dang. How many kilograms of fish do you eat a year, Katrina? <laughs> I mean, I think we eat about 350 pounds a year. So that's about 150 kilos of fish. Yeah, I think U.S. is, I want to say it's like 15 kilos, which still seems like a lot, but about 30 pounds. Definitely more than that. <laughs> Katrina's family brings the average up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got a new USAID-funded project called Wonders of the Mekong. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Zeb? Wonders of the Mekong, it's funded by U.S. Agency for National Development. We started in 2017, so it's been going for a while, and it focuses on the many different values of a healthy Mekong River. Every river has value in terms of fisheries, ecosystem services, providing water, providing power. 
And so we happen to be focused in Southeast Asia on the Mekong, but what we're finding in the Mekong is also true for rivers in North America, true for rivers all around the world. And so we are looking at the importance of fisheries, the importance of sediment, of natural flows, of habitat connectivity, so that the river can provide the 2 million tons of fish that it does every year and support the thousand different kinds of fish that it supports. That's cool. Yeah, fish are very important. That's another common thread. I mean, you see it here in Alaska where it's just, yeah, people's livelihoods and diets are largely supported by fish. So I think that's another good tie. I came from Arizona. In Arizona, people don't necessarily have the connection to fish that they do in a place like Alaska. You know, you have an incredibly important salmon fishery that Bristol Bay supports, and then also incredibly valuable mineral deposits, gold and I think copper. And how do you balance, you know, the economic gain that you would get from mining versus the economic and cultural importance of the salmon fishery? And that's a struggle that plays out, you know, all over the U.S. and all over the world. And because fish are so important in Alaska, There are a lot of nice examples of fish being given the value that they deserve and being managed as a valuable, economically valuable and culturally important resource. Yeah, that's a good point. Sitting here in Alaska, are you guy in North Carolina, are you in, you know, Nevada or wherever folks are sitting, you know, what are some reasons they should care about these big fish here and abroad? The big fish are indicators of ecosystem health. And, you know, it's not just big fish, it's all fish, it's aquatic life, aquatic biodiversity. But if we can keep the big fish, which are the most vulnerable in the river, that's an indication that we are managing the river well, that it's not polluted, that the habitat is not degraded, that we haven't messed up the habitat or the flows or the water quality so much that these fish can no longer survive. All of those things are good for us as well, not only because we eat fish, but we also depend on healthy rivers and lakes for our own survival. Finding ways to protect these fish in the face of all the threats they face is a challenge. But if we succeed, it means you know we're succeeding in protecting our rivers and lakes, and that benefits not only the fish, but certainly humans as well. Awesome. One thing that I'm maybe most jealous of about your career is that when I look at a lot of other fishery scientists out there, they tend to focus on one ecosystem or one small group of closely related species and they don't get to travel around and do much. You've somehow managed to avoid that and just get to go and do all this kind of cool work all over the world with all these different and diverse fishes. What kind of advice would you give to someone who's looking to not only, you know, have an impact, but also have an adventure? I've always been interested in in water, in the outdoors, in animals, and that interest and appreciation very gradually grew into a career. So I was an ecology and evolution major at the University of Arizona as an undergrad, was lucky enough to get a summer job with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Cooperative Research Unit, 
And my summer job was doing native fish surveys in the Colorado River in Grand Canyon National Park. And so I spent two summers or three summers working in the Priya River. We would raft down the Grand Canyon. We'd walk up all the tributaries, Bright Angel, Kanab, Shunamu, and look for native fish. So that's sort of how I got my start. But the sort of guiding principle of my career choices and my kind of choices in life is to look for opportunities that excite me where I can do a good job and then follow those opportunities. And it hasn't been a straight path. You know, there have been disappointments, there have been setbacks, but I think, you know, finding, following interest and always looking for opportunities that, that has served me well. I would say like, I'm very lucky that I get to focus on big fish all over the world. I mean, You've kind of forged a path now and sort of shown people that it can be done. Have you seen more people sort of following in your footsteps trying to do that at all? I think there have always been people that are interested. We just don't have the structures in place to do it. There needs to be more opportunity and organization, potential funding opportunities. Those types of things don't exist. So we tend to follow opportunities. We have to. We're limited by the jobs that are available mm-hmm. and by the opportunities that are available. And so I would go into classrooms 20 years ago and I'd show photos of these big fish and kids wouldn't know the names. And now every I could show 20 different species of mega fish and kids can name every single fish. So cool. the, the awareness has skyrocketed. The interest, I believe, is much higher than it used to be. I hope what comes next are more opportunities for people who have an interest in conservation of freshwater fish. We'll have to see if that materializes or not. I certainly hope it does. What every fish needs is a group of people who take an interest, who care about it, and then take action to protect it. And in places where these fish still occur, that's what you see. So you have giant trout in Europe and Mongolia, where in small areas, fishing clubs or local communities have taken an interest and protected the fish. Lake Winnebago in the U.S. is a great example where the people living around Lake Winnebago for decades have taken an interest in that fish and managed that fishery sustainably. I hope that we can learn enough about them and raise awareness in a way that people recognize these fish's importance and take action to protect them. What's your favorite (laughs) off-the-beaten-path success story? (laughs) In Cambodia, there was a fisherman who caught a critically endangered Mekong giant catfish. Everyone has phones now, so they took a video. They'd never seen the species before. They'd never seen a fish that big. It's worth several hundred dollars. And they released the fish back into the river and, you know, talked about what they caught and why they were releasing it. (laughs) Successes can be small in in this line of work. Uh, In Mongolia... We started working with one man named Gonzarig when he was 17, and he was just starting his undergraduate work. And he worked with the giant trout project that we were involved with. So he's in his late 30s now. He has a master's degree in biology. He helped found Mongolia's first fly fishing club. He's an you know ardent conservationist. I've been out on the river with him, you know, when he's 
saw some people fishing that were taking fish and he's just walked right over to them and talked to them and gently taken the fish away from them and put it back in the river. Those types of local, small successes, you know, it's probably not going to save a species, but I really love seeing that. That's cool because that's just like two people right there who made a pretty significant action and difference. If we all did that or all had some small role to play, it seems like it would make a big difference. Yeah. And I also think, yes, we need more action. Yes, we need collective action, but it all starts with one person. And so let's all try to do what we can. If someone catches a large fish, whether it's a freshwater fish, a gar, or if they catch an anadromous fish like a white sturgeon or green sturgeon or a big skate in the ocean, what, if anything, would you say in terms of handling large fish to keep them safe and also to keep yourself safe? Are there any like kind of common messages across the board you could just share quickly with us? Every fish is different and reacts differently to being caught. You know, some fish, like most species of sturgeon that I've dealt with, handle capture very well as long as they're handled gently and kept in the water. We caught one sturgeon in the Fraser River. It had a pit tag, which allows uh, scientists to, you know, track its capture history. It had been caught 27 times. Oh, dang. And it was a big, beautiful, I want to say it was like eight or nine foot white sturgeon, a beautiful fish, healthy So fish like sturgeon can handle capture well. Nile perch, if you look at them the wrong way, they'll keel over and die for whatever reason. So yes, as a general rule, kind of whatever fish people are fishing for, if the intent is to release it, keep it in the water, handle it gently, you know, remove the hook as gently as possible, and then get it back in the river. Awesome. Thank you. For people who are trying to inform themselves about freshwater issues around the world, where are some hot spots that people should really be looking and trying to pay attention to the news of what's going on? The Balkans is certainly a region where there's a high diversity of interesting fish, a lot of development pressure, and a lot of interest in conservation and even testing some new mechanisms for river protection. That's an exciting area. Uh, what's going on in the, the U.S. right now with some of the dam removals is incredible. You have the dam removals on the Klamath that it's been progressing slowly, but that's an amazing, incredible project that will really benefit fish and fisheries and people downstream. We've already had a few removals on the Elwa, on the white salmon, a few large on the river in Maine, Penobscot, and by and large, the results in terms of the fish population health have been very hopeful and very positive. The U.S. can be a leader on a lot of these issues in terms of piloting dam removals and invasive species control and environmental flows, all of these ideas that we know that are important, but that we need to learn more about and test and trial As we have successes in the U.S., those models and that knowledge is going to spread throughout the world. What's the biggest fish? Freshwater (laughs) fish. (laughs) Why do you want me to spoil? So, (laughs) (laughs) I've spent the last 10 years working on a book about the world's largest freshwater fish. It's called Chasing Giants, The Search for the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. And in that book, we tell the stories of many of these fish as we're trying to determine which fish is in fact the world's largest. 
I will tell your listeners, the book starts with the capture and harvest of a 646-pound catfish in northern Thailand. You read the book, Guy. What, what would you say? I'd say that it ends with the release of an even bigger fish. <laughs> well, yeah, that, and that's a good way to say it because it was a satisfying ending and all the more satisfying because the fish at the beginning of the book was killed and the fish at the end of the book was released for conservation and science. I want to believe that that shows how far we've come in the 20 years that I've been working on this. Book's done. Wonders of the Mekong's underway. What's next for Zeb Hogan? (laughs) I hope more of the same. I hope more of the same. I mean, the fish that I work with could use a hundred more scientists working on them. So I hope to continue what I'm doing um, as long as I can. No, we really appreciate having you on. This was very fascinating to hear about all of your work and these big-bodied fish. Super cool. Okay. Get out there and enjoy all the fish. And I'll flip that saying, when it comes to the world's biggest-bodied freshwater fish, there's a need to not just think globally and act locally, but also to work together to act globally. So thanks, Deb. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. And I'll chime in on the credits today. A special thanks to my friend, colleague, and former landlord, Peter Thomas, for putting us in touch with today's guest. Are you going to do a, a, a show with Hulk Hogan? you going to bring the Hulkster on board? <laughs> That's a big know, fish, I, brother! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a good collab! <laughs>